0: Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17-34. If you have a pew Bible near you, it'll be on page 958-989. through Um, And if you don't own a Bible, please take uh, the pew Bible you find as a gift from us. Hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you came together, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Dave, for reading Scripture this morning, and again, it's a delight to have each one of you here, especially if you're here visiting uh, or here celebrating with us. These child dedications is an extended special welcome to you. So glad that you've uh, chosen to be with us this morning and uh, are looking forward to uh, this, looking at this text and this passage. And before we, we look at this text this morning, I want to just uh, pause and ask for God's help to read, understand, and obey uh, His Word this morning. <coughs> so, Living God, help us to hear your holy Word with open hearts, so that we may truly understand, and understanding that we may believe, and that we may believe, and in believing, that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all the world. And We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Most people, we live in a world of barriers. Neighborhood barriers, language barriers, racial and ethnic barriers, socioeconomic barriers. And and barriers that they mark who's in and who's out. Who's in the know, who really gets it, and who isn't and who doesn't. And we can't help ourselves as people. We want to be on the in group. We want to be in the know. And actually, I think Tina Fey uh, captures this allure and power, this desire to be in the end group incredibly in her, her film Mean Girls. And the film, if you've not seen it, tells the story of, of a high school girl who inadvertently finds herself caught up in, in the plastics. The, the most exclusive and popular clip at their North Shore High School in Chicago. And what Tina does such a great job of in this film is is capturing the power of not only the desire to be in the the it group, the the in group, the most popular group, but the intense desire to be a part of any group. And and the corresponding fear of being rejected. If you remember at the beginning of the film, if you've seen it, one of the girls is showing the new girl around school and she walks through the cafeteria and points out all the different Groups at the school, right? There's the plastics, the anti-plastic, the Asian nerds, the cool Asians, the burnouts, the cheerleaders, the girls who don't eat anything, the girls who eat their feelings, the, the junior varsity cheerleaders, the junior varsity jocks, the press, the ROCC guys, the art freaks, the varsity jocks, the varsity cheerleaders, all these different groups in the school. And what Tina Fey gets so powerfully and hilariously in this film is the same thing that C.S. Lewis touched on 60 years earlier in what he described as the inner ring phenomenon. The inner ring is that group of people who are really in the charge, who are really in the know, who are really popular. And Lewis writes this in his address called The Inner Ring. He says, I believe that in all men's life, and he's talking about all people, in all people's lives, at certain periods and in many lives, at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. And Lewis, like Tina Fey, which is actually not a phrase I'd ever thought I'd my hear myself <laughs> <laughs> and Lewis, like Tina Fey, notes that the inner rings aren't just about being in the socially popular groups. Lewis points out there is another sort of person who desires to be in what we might call today indie culture. And he writes that an invitation from a duchess would be a very cold comfort to a man smarting under the sense of exclusion from some artistic or communistic coterie. Poor man, it is not large lighted rooms or champagne or even scandal about peers or cabinet ministers that he wants. It is the sacred little attic or studio the head bent together, the fog of tobacco smoke, and the delicious knowledge that we, four or five, we are the people we know. These are the people who who only like a band until it's popular and other people have actually heard of them. Who watch cult movies and TV shows and and likes them precisely because the mainstream doesn't. In Inner Rings, Lewis points out, they exist for exclusion. He says, there'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. He says, exclusion is no accident. It is the essence of the inner ring. And we find these rings, these groups, these barriers everywhere we go, don't we? At school, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, at the playground with the other parents. Almost everyone recognizes that this is a problem. But how do we solve it? This is the key question. Lots of people have put forth different solutions. But Christianity's answer for thousands of years is bread and wine. A meal. And maybe that sounds a bit ridiculous. But it's true. There's one meal that breaks every barrier. There's one meal that breaks every barrier, that heals every wound, that provides the source of every apology, that is the grounding and basis for all forgiveness. You see, barriers and inner rings, they're nothing new. In fact, they were destroying and dividing the church that Paul had started in the ancient greco Roman city of Corinth. And the one moment of this community, this ancient church's life,
0: the one moment in their communal life that was supposed to
1: break down every barrier had actually become the place, not where they demonstrated unity, but it had become a place where exclusivity and division were highlighted and perpetuated. And this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to see three things. First, that all of us, we're experts at building barriers. We're experts at putting up walls. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is the only one who breaks the one barrier that matters. Jesus breaks the one barrier that matters. And then finally, that it's not too late for any of us. So first, that that we are expert barrier builders. Second, that Jesus breaks the only barrier that matters. And then third, that it's not too late for any of us. So what we discover first as we look at this text is that all of us, we, like the Corinthian church, we are expert barrier builders. Look again, if you have a Bible open uh, or have it on your phone, look at verses 17 through 22. Paul says, and he's continuing in this instruction, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul says, actually, you come together meeting as a church, you're worse off when you do that. For in a place, in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe this report, for there are many factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what's happening here? Why is Paul so frustrated? Why is he so angry with this church? And our best understanding is that when this church would come together, and know that phrase is used four times in this passage, when you come together, when you come together, When they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they were actually dividing and excluding one another along socioeconomic lines. You see, at this time in in the ancient church, communion was celebrated not as like a part of a worship service, just as its own isolated thing, but it it was taken as part of this broader communal meal. It was one part of a larger meal. And the way that the... Corinthian church was celebrating this, they were doing it in a way that it couldn't possibly be called the Lord's Supper. But Paul says, this isn't the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating here. And in light of this, Paul says, you've got to change what you're doing. But why? What were they doing that was so wrong? Well, in order to answer this question, we need to understand some of the cultural background. Because Christians gathered together on Sundays, uh, as we do today, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. But 2,000 years ago, when Christianity was a minority religion, an oppressed minority religion, um, they hadn't made the shift yet to worshipping and having Sundays as a day off in the broader culture. So Sunday was the first day of the week. It was Monday. So Sunday church was on a work day. And we'll see why that matters in just a moment. Also at this time... There weren't church buildings. Again, this church has just begun. So what happened is that people would gather in homes. And so typically, as the church began to grow, they would meet in the larger homes of people who who usually owned their own homes and also were wealthier, so they had larger homes that could accommodate a large group. And so here's what would happen on Sundays. And if you remember, this was like a Monday. This is the first day of the work week for them. The wealthier people who didn't have to work a, a day job, or had a lot more flexibility in their job, they would arrive early at the gathering. And basically, they would start getting together, and they would kind of start drinking. They'd start drinking uh, and eating long before the poorer Christians and slaves get there, because they had to work. So I mean, they couldn't get off work until 6 or 7 o'clock, but the others had been there who didn't have to work for a long time. But that wasn't all. This reality also meant that by the, the time the poor people, that the slaves, the lower class people arrived, all the best seats in the house were taken, right? So the dining room was full, maybe the nice patio was filled up. And so if you were poor and you got there late because you had to work, now you're stuck in the hallway or on, on the, the porch. And so it was really clear who was sort of in and out, who had a lot of money and who didn't. And also, this meal wasn't a potluck like we think of it today. So, you know, when we get together for a potluck, everybody just brings a dish and you put it on the buffet and everyone shares together, right? But in this context, everyone kind of brought their own picnic meal for themselves and their family. And you could easily tell by what someone brought to eat how well off or not they were. In fact, as I was reading this text and doing some work on the background, it reminded me, when I was in seminary, uh, often we would go to this thing called Ravinia. And Ravinia is a big outdoor concert venue in the North Shore of Chicago. And when the Chicago Symphony Orchestra would play there, if you were a student, you could go for free. And so it was a fun thing as a, as a seminary student to so bring your student ID and get to go with friends and listen to some music. But the thing with Ravinia is you have to get there really early uh, to get a good seat. And it was kind of a little bit of a unwritten contest about who could have the most lavish picnic set up. And so the earlier you got there, the better seat you had. And you would see people setting out these just, they had like a little fence around their area. They'd bring, they'd have a table, candles, like fine wine. It was like, some of these was like a little restaurant setup. And, and that's all well and good for a concert. I mean, it was fun to kind of go and look at the different setups that people had. But this was happening at church. Not okay, Paul says. It's not the Lord's Supper that they were eating. It was the wealthy supper or some other supper, but it wasn't the Lord's supper when they came together. And I think this is the thing that was most powerful to me in looking at this. What they were doing, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, or there wasn't anything wrong with it in the eyes of the culture. So they were just, this is how Roman society works. The the wealthy upper classes ate here. uh, The lower poor classes ate there. So what they were doing was they were just following social convention. But the gospel calls us beyond normal and status quo. The values of the culture were colliding with the wisdom of the cross. Commentator David Garland expresses this Well, what Paul is concerned about, he says, Paul is intent on one thing, to uproot the Corinthians meal from the poisonous soil of Greco-Roman conventions and replant it in the nourishing soil of Christ's loving sacrifice for others. The only question that Paul raises is this, does what is done proclaim the Lord's death or does it advertise our selfishness? And again, the opportunity in this church was, for division was rampant because the thing that most people had in common, the only thing that most people had in common in this church, was their Christianity. I mean, they came from very different social, political, economic, class backgrounds. And the same is true for us as a church today. We talk about this. The beautiful thing about the local church and the gospel is it brings together people who would never otherwise be together you see a great picture of this in in Acts when Paul comes into Philippi and he gets three different encounters where he sees a a successful wealthy businesswoman come to know Christ. And then a a blue-collar jailer and a woman, a slave girl who had been oppressed by demons and had been enslaved. And now all three of these people are in the same building worshiping together. No other reason would those three people have hung out together. but it also creates opportunity for division. And if you don't fight against it, it's just gonna naturally happen because it's how society works. And here's the thing. If it's within the realm of our, our fallen, broken human nature to make the Lord suffer a place of division and one upwardship and, and self-centeredness, and means our potential for, for terrible things is really pretty remarkable. And why is this? Because ever since the separation from God in the garden, we are in a place of having to get our identity, our sense of, of being okay, our sense of meaning from something other than God. And so where do we turn to get that sense of, of this is who I am, this is how I belong, this is what I do to feel secure? Well, we we turn to our group to our political affinity, to our family, to our inner ring, whatever that might be. And as Lewis says, inner rings are necessarily exclusive. So where are your inner rings? Where are your barriers? And and notice I didn't frame that question in terms of reflect and ask yourself if you have barriers rather, where are they? We all have them, don't we? I mean, who would you most struggle to eat with here? And think both individual and collective. Not just a person you don't like, but what kind of person? Particular people, groups of people, types of people. Who do you tend to avoid? Another way of getting at this is, is who is They for you. When you talk about they or them, who are those who are those people? I mean, even if they're fellow believers, who are who are they? I mean it could be the people who are different political persuasion from you? It could be people who different socioeconomic status than you, different school than you go to. Who are who are they? Uh, another way of getting at this is, is what is the filter that you use when, when you get an invitation, right? We're all busy. We all have lots of stuff on our calendar. And So someone invites you to do something, what is kind of the grid that you, you run through? <coughs> if somebody's going to give me tickets to go to the Royals game with them, maybe I can make that work on my calendar. But what if it's kind of that awkward person asking you to come to a barbecue at their house? It's like, well, looks like it's going to be a pretty busy day. I've got some stuff I need to do. We we're all busy, right? We have to make choices on our calendar. But what's the motivation behind those choices? Another way to do it, this is whose opinion do we take seriously? And whose opinion do we just kind of dismiss out of hand? Where are those barriers? And, and, and what about the systemic barriers The society says these barriers are okay, they're normal, they're they're fine, it's just the way things are. But remember, we're called to something better than normal, than the way things are in the status quo. So how do we overcome these things? How do we break through these barriers? And the answer, like we said from the very beginning, the answer is a meal. As crazy as it seems, the answer is a meal. Jesus breaks the only barrier that truly matters, and communion in the Lord's Supper bears witness to the reality that this barrier has been broken. Or at least that it bears witness to that fact when it's celebrated as the Lord's Supper, when it's truly being celebrated as the Lord's Supper. Look at what Paul says here when he continues to write verses 23 through 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Paul is quoting Jesus here, and he's alluding to the Lord's Supper, the final meal that Jesus ate with his disciples before he was crucified. And just before Jesus left his disciples, one of the things that he taught them was to eat this meal, to celebrate this meal together. And where the Lord's Supper comes from is, is the Passover meal. So it's rooted deeply in the Jewish Passover ceremony. What we call the Lord's Supper is is really based on that Exodus event. You see, in the book of Exodus, the final plague of the ten plagues that God sends on Egypt was the plague of the firstborn. And God said, take a lamb and sacrifice it. When you do it, spread the blood on the doorposts of your home. In any home covered by the blood, the angel of death will pass over that home and that family will be spared Now, many of us here are somewhat familiar with that story, uh, that Passover story, um, whether it's from film or movies, but we often fail to grasp the radical, social, cultural, religious statements being made in the act of the Passover, because on that night in Egypt— It didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile, if you were slave or free, man or woman, rich or poor, young or old. That night in Egypt, you either lost a lamb or you lost a son. All the things that we define ourselves around, the barriers we create, the identities we build, the accomplishments we achieve, the Passover undoes them all. We are all spiritually the same, We are under the judgment of God, if not our blood, then the blood of a substitute on our behalf. There is only one barrier that matters. You see, Jesus, during his ministry, he confronted almost every barrier in the ancient world. He empowered women, he loved sinners, he created for, he created and cared for and lifted up the poor and the oppressed, he healed the sick and the unclean, he ministered to Jews and to Romans, to Gentiles, he talked with prostitutes, he ate with tax collectors, he dismissed almost every conceivable social barrier possible, except for one, the barrier between a holy God and sinful humanity. And that may sound shocking to you, but the Bible teaches that our fundamental, universal human problem is that there's a barrier between us and the one who made us, between God and us. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he took wine, and he said, Tonight I will break the barrier between you and God. By By my death, with my broken body, with my blood shed, He says, I am the true Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul wants us to see this. The Lord's Supper reminds us that the one barrier that actually matters, the only barrier that really matters, that barrier has been broken on the cross. And it exposes all other barriers as simple human pride. I mean, what causes divisions among us as people? What causes divisions between class and race and gender? Pride is at the heart of it. The thought that somehow, in some way, that I'm better than someone else. But the Lord's Supper, every time we take communion, it reminds us that apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, that we're all undone. There's nothing that you or that I can do. Nothing that we have, nothing that we have done or haven't done that can save us. And that's why Paul says, how can you dare to take the Lord's supper when there are divisions and barriers among you? How can you let that meal be a place that that points out division and separation? He says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul is saying that when you take communion and there's divisions among you, it's like crucifying the Lord all over again. You're trampling on the gift of free grace as if you don't, you're saying that this doesn't really matter, that this body blood stuff, it it doesn't really matter because my primary identity is with my group, with my inner ring. The Lord's Supper breaks the only barrier that matters. So remember what's already been broken on your behalf. Jesus says, remember when you eat and when you drink. So we don't just eat and drink in the act of celebrating communion. We remember. But remembering, the kind of remembering that Jesus and Paul are talking about, that kind of remembering, it's more than just Calling to mind. So we're just kind of bringing up facts and remembering that those facts are true. It's the act of making those truths, those facts, making them realities new and fresh again in that moment. This is what the Passover did for God's people in the Old Testament, and it's what it does for us as God's people today in the Lord's Supper. Listen to how um, Leonard Vanderzee explains this in, in a fantastic book called The Christ Baptism in the Lord's Supper. He says, the Passover rituals were not merely recalling an event. They were a representation, making the present, making present the past, which can never remain merely past, but becomes effective in the present. When the Israelites remember the Exodus, they are participating in it. And so when we remember Jesus is in the Lord's Supper, it is more than a recollection of events of the night he was betrayed or what he did on the cross. It is a remembrance by participation. Remembrance means I participate in his death and resurrection as I receive the bread and wine. Remembering is more than recalling. It's the difference between reading about the Civil War in a history book and being a Civil War reenactor. It's the difference between knowing that May 18th is your birthday and actually celebrating that day with a party. Um, it's the difference between if, if let's say, your, your mom calls you later this week and says, you forgot Mother's Day. And you said no, I didn't forget it. I just didn't do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, would that be a helpful response? You can remember something in a cognitive way, right, and not actually celebrate it or enter into it. Remembering is active. It, it responds to the truth, as you recall. It participates in the Lord's Supper emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. So when we stand in a line to receive communion, we aren't simply remembering what Jesus did. We're remembering why he had to do it and our identity with him in it. We remember in the communion line that we were so bad off. That we were so broken that that this is what it took to rescue us. Jesus dying, his body being broken, his blood being poured out. You see, there, there is no pride in the communion line. There's no pride in the communion line. It's the spiritual refugee line. Every time. I mean, think about what it is to be a refugee. When you you read in the news about the the terrible situation in Syria, so many refugees in in Iraq and other places. In a war-ravaged country, when you find yourself as a refugee, it, it doesn't matter what you did before. It doesn't matter if you were a doctor or a day laborer, a street cleaner or a lawyer. Everyone's on equal footing in the food line. Everyone is is equally dependent, equally in need. There's no pride in the communion line. Every one of us is dependent. Every one of us is in need. But there's also no despair in the communion line. There can't be. There can't be. Because communion isn't for squeaky clean people who never do anything wrong and come to pat themselves on the back. No, communion is the place where dirt covered sinners come again and again and again to know afresh that all of their sins have been washed away. As the old hymn puts it, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The Lord's table, pride is crushed, and hope rises again and again, week after week after week. It's powerful stuff. But there's a subtle danger in the church that with a message like this, and I know that I feel it. And, and if you're new this morning, maybe this is a lot of new content. you think, "Wow, I, I didn't understand this before. This is a lot of new information. this is great. But if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been to church, or if you were raised in the church, there's probably nothing that I've said this morning that's, that's brand new for you. And that was actually true for the Corinthians as well. Remember what Paul says in verse 23, what I received from what I already delivered to you. Paul said, I'm not telling you anything new. But is, you didn't pay attention. You didn't take it seriously. You're not really living into it. And that's why he says this. Look at verse 27. He says, "Whenever or whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So is Paul saying to them that that some of you are dying because you didn't listen to me? I mean, maybe, I mean, how about that for inner generating kind of interest in the sermon, yeah? yeah. Maybe I should try that tonight. Listen up! Or die. <laughs> but, but that's not what Paul is saying. And, and I don't even think he's saying to us here this morning that if you abuse the Lord's Supper ever that God's going to take your life like that. But he is saying that God may use hard things like sickness, even death in the community, to wake us up spiritually. And that's what God's discipline is. It's a warning. It's a reminder of what is really important. And warnings are scary. But they also are a reminder that it's not too late. The fact that we're still hearing the, re- the reminder, the warning, tells us that it's not too late to take it seriously, to pay attention, to live into this act as we ought. God has not given up on us yet. God uses the regular practice of communion to wake us up, to remind us of who we are and what we have in the gospel. So how do we do that well? Well, there's kind of two practical steps, two practical takeaways from this text. First, Paul says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Which is another way of saying, repent. Repent of your bitterness towards others before you take communion. Uh, We don't just practice the Lord's Supper here every week because John just doesn't want to pick out more songs. We do it because we constantly need repentance and the gospel reminding us of forgiveness. To examine ourselves, to ask God for his grace afresh each week, each moment. This is an opportunity for that as a community gathered. Sure, we pray and ask God to forgive us and confess our sins individually on a regular basis in our lives. But there's something unique about together as a community, coming together at the table and uniting, remembering what brings us together as the gospel. So examine yourself. Second, discern the body. That's what Paul says in verse 29. He he means remember the community. Practice unity. Don't just desire unity. Don't just talk about unity. Everybody wants unity. Paul's saying practice. Discern the body. Go and find the person in church who you're angry at, that you must reconcile with, that you're bitter towards. And for some of you here this morning, that actually might mean making a phone call to someone you used to go to church with. Because in our cultural context, it's easy if you have a problem with someone in church just to leave and go down the street somewhere else doesn't mean you have to go back to that church, but there might be a relationship that needs to be made right. (coughs) Maybe you can't do that action that you need to right now this morning, but make a commitment this morning to do that. Plan to do it. Write it down before you take the bread and the cup. Commit to making it right. Or, Or don't take it at all. And instead pray and ask God for His help. That's okay. And none of us has to take communion when it's offered. It's a place of, of forgiveness and hope and repentance, yes, and we all ought to be desiring those things each week, but here's stuff so just I'm not ready yet. I don't know if I, I feel like I need to do something first. It's okay not to, not to receive. There's nothing magical about communion. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to be honest with yourself and know that you're not in a good position to take it. That's what this time is for, to discern the body, to examine yourself. Whatever we do, we can't wait to make it right. Don't wait to make it right. Unity in the church, breaking down barriers, is never something we should wait for, or put off, or ignore. As James K. Smith puts it, he says, In a broken and fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of. Of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. And the way that we begin to learn that reconciliation is at the communion table. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist, part of the Lord's Supper, I love this language, are like training meals meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. This meal breaks barriers if we we'll let it. We take it seriously. Because when we take it seriously, we remember that together as a community, we remember that God did not hold a grudge against us. And he absolutely had every right and reason to hold a grudge against us. But he didn't. God didn't wait to reconcile with us. He didn't wait for us to be in a place of, of, of repentance. It says in Ephesians that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, while we were so off, God came after us. He loved us first, while we were still angry at him. You see, and Jesus himself breaks every inner ring by inviting everyone into the most inner of all rings. See, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, speaking to his disciples in the upper room, he says, I no longer call you servants, call you friends. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been invited into the most inner of all rings. Jesus calls you friend. He calls you son or daughter. You are invited into his family, into the very heart and life and joy of God himself. When you have that, all those other inner rings... Don't matter anymore. Every barrier is break. One meal breaks every barrier. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who gave us your Son, would you make us a community?